Please keep your Bibles open. We're actually going to cover three chapters from chapters 9 to 11 this morning. Uh, so it'll be good for you to like, make sure um, what I'm speaking about is from the Bible. And we will be jumping around quite a bit as well. Okay, so before we begin, how about I start with prayer. Father God, as we get to uh, this portion of Scripture, which um, for some of us we might find a little bit confusing and convoluted, Lord, we pray that your Spirit would make things clear to help us to really hear what you are speaking, what you are saying to us. And we pray that these words will have an impact on how we live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, something I... You know, uh, from time to time, I might wonder is, you know, if I ever see God uh, eventually, what would I ask him? I wonder if you've ever thought of these questions yourselves. You might have a list of questions you might, you know, want to ask God. Uh, and you might have heaps of questions, but for me, what I keep coming back to is, well, what about non-Christians? <laughs> what about those who didn't end up following Jesus? What happens to them? Uh, because when we look at the world around us, so few seem to have responded positively to the gospel. Uh, and I'm like, why, why is that the case? Maybe we might question God's power. Is, is God really that powerful when so many are rejecting him? Or maybe we might question God's goodness. Maybe God is capable of making everyone follow Jesus, but he somehow still allows people uh, even destines uh, some people to reject him. So does, does that mean he's not loving? Uh, which one is that? And for some of us, when we look at those around us whom we love, our families and friends who haven't come to trust in Jesus, this is not just an intellectual question, right? It's a very personal and emotional question. This is huge, isn't it? And as we look at chapters 9 to 11, Paul is anticipating that his readers, the Roman church, might have similar questions. The question of, well, what about the nation of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament? But before we get there, let's remind ourselves where we've been so far, right? We've seen the bad news, we are all under God's judgment. We've seen the good news that despite this, because of Jesus, we all get to receive righteousness as a gift. It's free. In the last couple of chapters that we've covered, Paul has drawn out in great detail what it means for those who trust in Jesus. We have a new hope, new assurance, because God was willing to sacrifice his son for us while we were his enemies. What about now? Now that we are God's friends. We've been made into a new humanity, no longer marked by death as our end goal, but because of Jesus, our end goal is now eternal life, righteousness. We've heard Paul squash some common complaints, some objections to the gospel. No, the free gift of the gospel doesn't mean that we are free to sin. No, the law doesn't do what you thought it does. It's actually powerless to produce righteousness. And in the last couple of weeks, we've seen what this all means. No condemnation. We've got God's Spirit to help us to do what the law was powerless to do. We have guaranteed glory to look forward to. Paul calls us more than conquerors, no matter what the world might throw at us. This is all amazing, isn't it? 
But for the Roman church, and again, as, as many of us as Christians, there might be another huge objection that they have at the back of their minds. Objection that is so big that Paul now spends three whole chapters to deal with this problem. What about Israel? Israel were God's chosen people, right? The nation whom God promised would, he would bless that he would make his own, his prized possession out of all the peoples of the earth. But in Paul's day, if you look around, the question is, what, why have they, by and large, rejected Jesus as a Messiah? Ultimately, this is a question asking, can God really be trusted if it looks like his promise to Abraham maybe failed? Right? That's what's at stake at, in these chapters. Can we trust God at his word? And so let's see Paul's answer then. And to start, we are going to see that God is indeed truly powerful. Oops, I've got to delete these slides. There you go. God is sovereign. Because did God's promise to Abraham not come to pass? Well, no. (laughs) His word did not fail. Why not? Because from the very beginning... Because from the very beginning, not every single one of Abraham's descendants were considered God's chosen. And so just look at Jacob and Esau's example in Genesis 25. So even though Isaac had two sons, ultimately, God chose which one of those sons would carry out the promise. It was not Esau, but it was Jacob. They were both descendants of Abraham, but only one carried the promise. And and this is the bit that becomes a bit uncomfortable for us. Verse 11. Uh, Sorry. Yes. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, she was told the older would serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But then you might think, Does this mean God is unfair? Because how can God make such a judgment, right? To call someone he loves and someone else he hates before they were even born, before they did a single thing, good or bad. And Paul's answer to that is, no, (laughs) no, God is not unjust. Just as God says to Moses in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Why is God not unjust in this way? God is not unjust because it depends on his mercy. So so let's stop and think about what mercy actually is. Because mercy is getting something that you don't deserve. Or rather, not getting something, not getting punishment that you do deserve, right? So mercy is saying to someone that you just caught red-handed breaking into your house, carrying off your large green TV, and instead of you saying, I'm going to call the police on you, I'm going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you punishment. I'm instead going to say, I'm going to let you go if you promise not to steal again. Right? I'm not going to give you what you deserve. That is mercy. And so God will be completely right and just to show mercy to either Jacob or Esau. They did nothing. Neither of them did anything to deserve the inheritance, the promises of Abraham. It's all God's free choice. But God is beyond simply fair and just here because God chooses 
to be merciful and compassionate. He chooses to show mercy to some. And so, just as God chooses who he shows mercy to, he also, at the same time, chooses who he hardens. Or, to put it another way, that maybe might be a bit more easy for us to hear, God chooses who will continue in their stubborn ways, in their stubborn rejection of God. But then, objection again, verse 19, then why does God still blame us? Who is able to resist his will, right? If God is the one choosing who's going to change their mind and who's going to continue to be stubborn and who's going to continue to reject him, then, then how can God blame us? But this is Paul's answer, verse 20. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Now, I mean, I wonder how many of us, as we, as we hear these words, do we find this a little bit, or maybe a lot, unsatisfying, right? What, what kind of an explanation is this? Because so many of us, raised in a, a Western culture in particular, we've been raised to reject such claims. We, that we should accept something simply because some higher power or some God said it was so, and we're just going to take them at their word, right? If we're told by an, an authority to do something, we must know exactly all the reasons why, right? We've been taught that. We question all their motives. We question whether it's truly the best thing that we should be doing. And that's fine. That there's, a, there's a certain wisdom to that. If we're talking about our human authorities telling us to, to do this or do that, it's actually discerning, right, for us to do that in our everyday lives. But the thing is, if there is an infinite creator out there, if there really is someone who spoke the entire universe out of words, out of his pure will and power, if it's true that our very existence comes from this creator God, then it's a bit ridiculous to suggest that we question this God, isn't it? To question whether the God who is the one who defines good and bad, right and wrong, to question his own ways. Now, of course, there's more to that. I'm not saying you should just trust in God because God said so, because there are good reasons to trust in God. As we've seen in the last eight chapters, we can trust in God's character. We can trust in his goodness, his nature. And we're going to come to this later on, but for now, can we just stop and think about how absurd it is that if there really is an all-powerful God out there, that we might dare to question him. But is that it? Right? God simply chooses who will believe and who won't, and we just passively sit back and, and wait for God to do the choosing, to do whatever he wants, and we, we have no say in it? Paul says no. Because alongside God's sovereignty, his power, is the other side of the coin that we need to uphold. And that is, we are all responsible for our actions. And in this case, Israel is responsible for her rejection of Jesus. Paul says it boils down to two reasons. And the first is this. Israel's rejection of God's righteousness to go, sorry, Israel rejected God's righteousness to go about their own way. They chose it. They chose to reject God. Now, in previous weeks, we've seen what the law meant for Israel, right? For them, it was God's revealed way of living rightly under him in the land. For them, it was how you have life. 
You follow the law and you have life to, to stay in this covenant relationship with God. And so they were right to elevate the law. They were right to take it seriously. But what was the problem? Verses 2 to 4 in chapter 10. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and, and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. See, their passion, the problem isn't their passion. The problem isn't how seriously they took the law or their zeal for the law, but the problem was that they're so focused on doing the law, on ticking off rules and regulations, that they lost focus of the point of the law itself. It's like someone who's learning to drive a car and their instructor tells them to, to drive safe, to make sure they keep to the speed limit. But as they become fixated on staring at their speedometer, making sure they don't, they don't exceed 50 k's an hour, they end up crashing because they weren't paying attention to their surroundings. Right? Israel had become so fixated on ticking the law, ticking off all the rules and the requirements of the law by the letter, that they lost sight of the purpose of the law. What is that purpose? Well, one aspect of it is Jesus. Romans 10:4. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes, right? Jesus is the end goal, he's the climax, the purpose of the law. So as you study the Old Testament, as you meditate on the Psalms, even as you try to apply the law, read its story, read its history, it's all meant to point to the true righteousness that can only be achieved by God's Son, Jesus. True righteousness for God's people could only then be attained by trusting in Jesus who gives us this righteousness. But Israel said, no, right? We would rather continue doing what we've always done. We will rather be gifted or earn righteousness through our own efforts, through our own abilities. Then we don't have to rely on someone else, right? We don't need to say that, oh, I'm actually in a state of sin. I'm actually holy enough. I, I, I want to believe that. I want to believe that by what I do, by what I tick off day in, day out, I am good enough. God must accept me. They didn't want to accept God's way of being perfect in God's eyes. We've seen this a couple of times already in Romans, haven't we? Why, doing some, why do something your own way when we... Why, why try to achieve something when it's already been done for you perfectly by God's perfect Son? And so Paul illustrates this from the very law that they should know so well. Paul begins by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30. Uh, here in Deuteronomy 30, Moses urges Israel one last time before they step foot into the promised land, right? He urges them to listen to God, to obey God, because they have no excuse. Just as Moses says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the deep? in order to know how God wants you to live, right? What does this mean? It means you cannot claim ignorance because as they stand there, as they are about to enter the, the promised land, they have God's law. God had, 
had just given them law in Sinai. They've been wandering around the desert for 40 years with this law. Moses has been teaching them this law. And on Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, as they're about to go in, Moses is giving this huge sermon explaining the law to them. The law is near you, verse 7. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. You have no excuse. You don't have to go somewhere to find out what God wants for you. You have it right in front of you, right there on your doorstep. And Paul says the same thing is at work right now, even more so. Because not only has the law been delivered to your feet, but the very fulfillment of the law has been delivered. Jesus is the one who comes down from heaven fulfilling the law. Jesus is the one who not only descended into the depths, but he came up from the dead, overcoming the curse of the law as we've seen before. Look who is on your doorstep now. It's the Son of God. It's your long-awaited Messiah who not only fulfills the law, but who now gives you the righteousness of that law wrapped up in a bow. All you need to do now is verse 9, to declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Can you see how simple it is, Paul is saying? Now, of course, Paul is using a shorthand here, right? It's not like merely by reciting these words, Jesus is Lord, that you somehow robotically become saved by some sort of magic charm thing that's happening. Paul has already shown us that we've been transferred from the reign of sin to the reign, the realm of righteousness. Following Christ is a complete and utter change in how we live for God now, right? So this is shorthand from saying we have put our trust in Jesus. We are following Jesus now. That's all we need to do. But Israel has said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to follow God's way. And so that's the first part to why Israel is accountable. They can't just blame God for choosing for them what they would believe. But then Maybe Israel hadn't heard properly. Maybe no one told them. And again, Paul is saying, no, Israel is without excuse. Verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, you might have heard these wonderful words before and how they've been used time and time again to show how important it is to send out missionaries to those who've never heard the gospel. All right? To believe, you must first hear, someone must preach, someone must send that person to preach, and so on and so forth. It's, it's just logic, right? And of course, we, we do need to be thinking about uh, raising up people sending out missionaries if we truly believe that this message of the gospel is, is, is something that the world needs. But as true as this is, this isn't why Paul is saying that, right? Paul isn't trying to say we should send out more missionaries. Sure, it's, 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 it's a logical conclusion to, to come to. I'm not saying people who preach like this is, is wrong. But what is Paul's point here? Verse 16, but not all Israelites accepted the good news. Verse 18, but I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did, right? That is, these critical steps needed for someone to put their trust in Jesus, 
they've, they've all happened, right? Even though Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, what was the very first place that he went to every time he went to a new town? It was a synagogue. He went straight to the Jews first. But what was their response? Every single time, they accused him of blasphemy. How dare you suggest that the Messiah might be crucified? How dare you say that our obedience to the law means nothing? How dare you suggest that those unclean Gentiles, they're the ones receiving salvation? Israel simply can't claim that God is unfair. They can't say, God, how can you blame me? Because Israel did hear the message, but they chose not to believe. And so, yes, God is sovereign in his plan on one hand, but equally true is that Israel have themselves to blame for rejecting God's solution. We are responsible. Now, what I have up here on screen, this is actually way too big to unpack with any detail today. And theologians have had all sorts of ways of putting these two statements together to work out the, the mechanics, and people have had massive debates and fights over this. But what I'll say today is that we need to hold both of these statements at once, right? Scripture does not allow us to emphasize one while rejecting or diminishing the other, right? God works out his sovereign plan in such a way that we are still free to make real choices. And yet, at the same time, our freedom to choose while real is not some sort of illusion, right? It's not an illusion that we have choice. This freedom never impinges on God's predestined plan for his creation. And this is where the rubber hits the road for us now. Because all this talk about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, trying to figure out how God works out his plan, well, what does it all mean? So let me draw a few implications from these chapters, particularly a few thoughts from chapter 11, which unfortunately we, we don't have much time to cover completely. And now, first and foremost, all this talk about how God's plan works out in Israel's rejection of him, this isn't just an intellectual problem, right? Reserved for Bible studies and Bible colleges. Let's jump to the very beginning of these chapters to see how Paul describes his feeling here. I speak the truth. I am not lying. My conscience confirms that through the Holy Spirit, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. You know what this means for Paul? Paul is saying he's ready to give up all the blessing that we've read about in chapters 5 to 8. No condemnation, peace, assurance, more than conquerors. Nothing can separate him from God's love. He's willing to give all that up so that his people might be saved. Paul sets out this tone from the very beginning. He is cut to the core that his own people, Israel, are not putting their trust in the Messiah. And along with Paul, we also need to approach this topic with the same sort of heartbreak that Paul feels when we're thinking about those who don't follow Jesus, right? First, of course, for the nation of Israel, but also for the rest of the world. As we wrestle 
as we live in a world, as we're surrounded by people who have by and large rejected Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, it's not just an intellectual exercise for us. But secondly, Paul reminds us that there is no place at all to feel superior to Israel. In chapter 11, Paul speaks of the people of God as being an olive tree. Right? The original Jews who did not believe, yes, they were pruned, they were cut. But at the same time, we who were not Jews by birth, those of us who actually were be believed in Jesus, we were grafted into this tree. Now, hearing this imagery, you know, they were cut off the tree, we were implanted into the tree. Does that make you feel a bit, you know, proud of ourselves? You know, you know, I'm in. Those original Jews, they were out. But Paul gives this warning for us, for those of us who have been grafted in. Verse 18, do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Verse 20, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith, but do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. I don't know about you, but when I read through the Old Testament stories, I just find myself getting really frustrated. These people who keep complaining in the wilderness just after they've witnessed all these miracles, just after they've seen what God has done to Egypt, how God has saved them from slavery. And the book of Judges just tells of generation after generation of people repeating the same sins and mistakes. And I just think, man, how thick are these people? What's wrong with them? But Paul reminds us here, the only reason that we can stand at all before God is that we stand by faith. Right? It's not because we were smarter than the Jews. It's not because that we actually listened to God apart from God's help, right? We got it because we were smarter. We did nothing to deserve our forgiveness of sin. We merely accepted the free gift that was offered by Jesus. If it weren't for the transforming work of the Spirit within us, those very same stories that we find so frustrating, it's actually speaking about us. Don't be proud. Don't look down of those who have rejected Jesus. And this applies to those of us who've heard the to those of us around us who've heard the gospel and have still chosen to reject Jesus too. Remember who you are. If you follow Christ today, you are saved by grace and grace alone. You were chosen out of God's mercy. It's not because you're more worthy than those who weren't chosen. But lastly, we need to remember that we need to let God be God. Even as we struggle to wrap ourselves around how God works, his sovereignty alongside our responsibility, see how Paul finishes our section here for Romans chapters 9 to 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment in past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? See, even as Paul is wrestling 
with these questions, giving these deep answers, answers that are taken straight out of God's scriptures, answers full of theological insight and, and Paul's wisdom, which is inspired by the Spirit. How does Paul end? Paul says he's merely scratching the surface of God's wisdom. As much sense as we can make, as much as we read Romans 9 to 11 and get a better grasp, a better understanding of how God works through our freedom, in the end, we can only say so much. In the end, we simply fall on our knees and acknowledge our inability to question God and His ways. We all have to acknowledge that we as mere humans before the all-powerful God, all-knowing, all-wise God in the universe, He is God. What is our response when it comes to some challenging bits of theology that we can't quite wrap our heads around? Now, particularly those of us who might be more academic or intellectual amongst us, uh, do you feel the need to understand every last bit of detail before we're ready to put our trust in God? When we come across a tricky concept, the Trinity, let's say, Christ being both fully man and fully God and what that might mean for him day to day as he walked amongst us on earth, whatever it might be, are we inclined to say, well, God doesn't fit into any logical category that I have. This God doesn't conform to how I understand the world. So there must be no possibility at all that this God is real. Or maybe we might start combing through the scriptures and, and putting our own judgment on what we read. No, this verse, outdated. No, I find that too offensive for me. No, we've progressed beyond that sort of thinking. Are these the way that you approach God and his word? Or do you let God be God and recognize that in our limited creatureliness, we simply don't know or understand all there is to know about God and his ways? Will you keep trusting in God and his word and his promises, even if we can't quite fit, how, quite, quite figure out how this all fits together? Because let's be clear. Who is this God that we're talking about here? It's not like God completely leaves us in the dark about his nature and character, right? It's not just like he pops up one day with his book and says, hey, trust me, and then poof, disappears. We know he is a loving God. Look at the lengths that he went to to show his love for you, for the whole world. Look at the cross, his one and only son, bearing all the suffering, all the death that we ought to suffer. We know he is a powerful God because he uses the freedom of human beings to reject his one and only son. He uses the freedom of the Jews' rejection of him to bring about our salvation. That's God. The salvation that he planned all along, right at the beginning, even before his promises to Abraham. This is a God we can trust. Will you trust him? Even if you can't completely understand his plan, even if there are questions that we can't quite put an answer to. And so let us finish with how Paul finishes these chapters. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's trust God to be God even when we can't completely understand, understand 
his plan. Let's pray. Our Father in God, our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are indeed sovereign. And we thank you that we are not mere robots that have no choice whatsoever, but somehow through your sovereignty, through your power, your plan, your promises, your plan to save the all, all creation still works out through our free choices. And Father, while we might not understand how that all works, all the mechanics, we pray that we will be people who will just continue to trust in you. As we look around us at the world who has by and large rejected you, help us to not grow cynical. Help us to not doubt your goodness, your love, your power. But help us to keep trusting you. Help us to look at what you have done on the cross. Help us to see that your plan is still very much at work. And so, Father, we pray that you help us to be people to hold on to these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.